Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Event Industry News Podcast. My name is James Dixon. As ever, wishing you a very good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever or wherever you tune in to this here podcast from. And welcome along to the show, everybody. Um, I'm in my new bunker. Um, I, I'm, I'm doing some recording in this in my latest of, of several podcast studios over the last few months. Um, like many people, you know, juggling the whole working from home as we uh, are on, you know, a, a good roadmap out of this. But um, I should say hello to everybody who's continued to do such great work from home. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everybody is staying well. Um, and we move to welcoming today's guest. David Ball is the founder and CEO of Brand Fuel. Um, Brand Fuel being a uh, I hasten to use the word agency, David, but, you know, d- d- we've got to give people a start point, uh, ultimately, um, with, with what you guys do. Let's throw it back to you. You do, you tell our podcast listeners who Brand Fuel are and what you guys do. Yeah, and, and very nice to meet you, James, and I'm looking forward to our, our chat. Um, Brand Fuel is a creative agency. Um, we focus on events, and that's been a kind of... Uh, a situation that's morphed over the last 16 years as we started out as a design agency mm-hmm. um, doing a lot of graphic design and uh, direct marketing and all sorts of stuff. Um, but the majority of our work now is in the events industry, which has been interesting for the last 12 months. Mm. Interesting, I think, is a word that many people would perhaps ponder over for a few seconds. Um, Shitsville may be another one that may some people throw out there, but but um, to, to, to get back on track, I, I maintain this stance that I've taken on the podcast in recent weeks, which is that as 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 crap as it has been for many reasons, it's also pushed everybody down uh, a road of learning, of development, of creativity. Um, you know, where there are situations like this, there is ultimately opportunity as well. Um, and I'm sure, like many other um companies in your position and certainly most of the people that work in the events industry you've been presented with challenges but ultimately you've been able to create opportunities um absolutely james i mean it has been terrifying and exciting in equal measures i kind of i liken it there's lots of different analogies but it's been a bit like coming across an iceberg that gradually the sea around drains and reveals the actual size of both the problem and the opportunity, Mm. uh, which has been enormous. We've seen such change, such rate and pace of change in that 12 months and everything we do um, that's affected all of our work. uh, We are a completely different business than we were exactly 12 months ago. Would you subscribe to the train of thought that... um collectively we were blinded by our success uh, to the point that when we were presented with this situation exactly 12 months ago that suddenly we were we were allowed the time to reset and rethink and reevaluate and maybe realize we weren't doing things as well as we could have done and um, and to, uh, to start taking those creative steps again to understanding audiences experiences engagement all of those words that we use in the industry continually but maybe and be guilty of just throwing around for a few years and actually not really understanding them I, I, I do i think it's been a massive kick up the backside for the whole industry um but i also i fear for some of the changes in the industry um, because there have been an awful lot of people that have been really adversely affected, and that is something that concerns us 
concerns me personally and concerns us as an agency and we're trying to do whatever we can to uh, shore those people up because we want them back in the industry you know i've got friends that we work with uh, for many many years who've um, become delivery drivers or you know yep. working for sainsbury's um, and people who've also changed careers completely um, so we're going to lose some talent out of the industry that is really unfortunate um, but the, the going back to the pace of change that's been absolutely necessary is just extraordinary and a lot of it is here to stay i know our industry is incredibly excited to get back to in-person events i'm incredibly excited to see the changes that we will make to those in-person events to make them even better mm. you know, with all the new technology we've been playing with um, with all the scope for thinking globally you know, the rule book flew out the window on March the 12th or whatever the date was. You know, yeah, and, and access, global access to talent, to people, to opportunities, to work, to corporates has been just amazing, breathtaking. Um, and it's, I think it's a very exciting time to be in this industry and planning for the next 12 months and what that's going to look like. And you've you've rightly highlighted um, a number of issues there, you know, in terms of personnel, people who work in the live events industry and where there has been no work for them. So they have understandably gone and sought employment elsewhere, you know, not that there is anything wrong with being a Sainsbury's delivery driver, but needs must. If you have bills to pay, you go where the work is. Um, that's the very essence of being a freelancer, which many people in our industry are. There has been no work doing what they do. So they have sought work and filled their diaries and, and, and good luck to them. But it does present this this possibility that some of them may not want to take the risk of coming back into the industry that won't just suddenly turn itself on again and go back to what it was like it turned itself off. Um, but there's also this, this question of being match fit, isn't there? Because, you know, I've used the term quite regularly. When you do a job day in, day out, you become match fit at it. You become quick, efficient, knowledgeable. And I don't think as an industry we're factoring in or giving enough consideration to getting some of these freelancers match fit again and how much time they may need to be given to get back up to speed. I think there's going to be an awful lot of pressure on them. I, look, I, again, you make a great point. I love the idea of, of thinking around that as being match fit. You know, I think the, the Six Nations has been interesting from that point of view. Um, just to see how they've dealt with a, a completely new way of having to play and perform. And I think you know, that's clearly made a difference to some teams and others. We are taking a really active role in trying to help freelancers in our community be match fit. Mm -hmm. So we've created a, an internal program, which I want to take external. It's called Plus One. Mm -hmm. and, what we do, and we've been doing this for a long time now, is we bring in freelancers that we know from our community and they shadow their opposite number who's working on virtual events and they see the whole project through we do some training with them as well but the critical thing is they come away with experience of real client work that they can put on their cv and the first few times we did it we were so heartened by the potential because uh, we had a production guy called Lawrence. Lawrence came and, and did uh, 
a, a plus one role with us. He then we then hired him to do a, a client role with us. He went off and got three months contract work simply because he had the experience. There are so many people, and we've done it for loads of people now. And we're actually, I'm writing a playbook of how that process works. I'm going to go out to our industry, to our other friendly, competitive CEOs who I have a pretty good relationship with, with most of them. I'm going to give them that playbook and invite them to do the same thing so that our little drop in the ocean of helping 10, 20, 30, 40 freelancers practice that muscle of virtual events and online events and just working, dealing with colleagues, getting back into the saddle. Um, I want that to be a, a program of growth. It's not a brand thing. It's just if you're a plus one agency, you're paying back to your community to get people, as to your point, match fit for when we're away to the races in a few months' time. Fingers, fingers crossed a few months' time, definitely. Um, and I think longer term, we're in a, a situation, again, agree or disagree, that I effectively think that we've, we've doubled unknowingly the size of our industry. Because when we go back to live, we will retain virtual yeah. because because ultimately we will look at it on a case by case basis, depending on the client and decide which option presents the best solution. There will inevitably be a combination of hybrid. But I think when you look at the skill set required of the people who assist with the delivery of virtual events against live events, they're not necessarily different skill sets, but you do need people with certain skills when it comes to running vmix studios for example you know yeah. um and i think that ultimately there's going to be increased opportunity certainly for freelancers for technicians for creative people um what are your thoughts on on how we actually move forward and balance the whole live and virtual um side of things and and again whether or not you agree that that may offer you know essentially the doubling of our industry i i, I think it's complicated and, and I, I always think about it from the client's perspective first. So let's just deal with the client landscape. There have definitely been corporates out there who have hunkered down, shut everything off, and done very, very little, in, in, in part because they don't need to, and in part because they're potentially scared of uh, how well it might go. Mm-hmm. Then there's everybody else who has... Um, in the first place, in the first place, people who have taken their existing portfolio of events and pushed them online, and then there's been that transition to working out that actually they have to go back to what the business challenge they're trying to solve for is first, and then find the most appropriate way of doing that online. Yeah. And we've seen that transition where clients have become much more uh, thoughtful, careful, and understanding of the of the pitfalls and the opportunities that online events bring. And now we're in a scenario where I think clients have seen evidence that some of these things are working and some of the benefits they didn't see coming are things like access to talent. So you can put an event on and you can get a bigger speaker um, with no travel from a remote location that you'd normally never consider. So that improves your delivery and your um, uh, engagement with your customers. And then there's access to um, a global audience. So you can put an event on, and instead of you having 300 people turn up in person, 
you might have 3,000 turn up online and suddenly new markets open up. Mm. Um, and I think that is a really fascinating opportunity. And clients are going to now look at, and I want them to look at the business case again and go, okay, for this event, this is a thought leadership event. Therefore, we really value the in-person experience. But there are some people who are not going to fly halfway around the world for this. So we're going to make it a hybrid event and make that content both available live and available post-event. And, and that's that, the, other bit, the democratization, James, of, yeah. of information. Absolutely. Yeah. Being able to, to, to watch Can Lion live when normally you'd have to pay you know, a very high ticket price to be there in person. Some of those things are going to be hard to, to drop now because the, you know, suddenly those audiences have grown, so the business models begin to change. I, um, I have a quite a particular view on, on things going forward, which relates to a phrase that I, I claim complete credit for that I coined on a previous episode. In business, time is money. And for the consumer, once we exit lockdown, time is life. And if somebody's got to spend 24 hours traveling to Tokyo for that international business conference and then 24 hours traveling back, that's two days of their lives that they could have been doing something more meaningful. So if they have the choice of having two days of their life back and accessing that particular event online, then they will choose to do that. And that's before we even get down the route of looking at the sustainability side of flying globally around the world and yep. how much from a sustainability point of view, the impact of being able to deliver virtual events for the right audience in the right context and the impact that can have. And I know that the sustainability thing is, is something that's always been a key part of, of, of your own operations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The biggest, the biggest challenge in live events and the biggest contributor to carbon emissions is travel. I mean, it's, it's a country mile. I think every event it averages out between 70 and 80% of, of the emissions are travel or transport. So this has been an absolute game changer in that respect. Uh, and it's made us rethink um, some of the in-person events that we do even now um, to try and be more local, to use less transportation, to choose our transportation more carefully, to use more local crews, fly less, less people. And it's done the same with our clients. Um, and the, you know, we've set ourselves as an agency a really ambitious target of being um, a net zero uh, emissions business by June 2022. And, and, and we have a serious amount of work to do to get that. Uh, um, completion of the ISO for sustainability um, was really important to us to set our management systems in order for us to start being able to have the systems and processes in-house that would enable us to, to keep on the right track when it comes to sustainability. And, and I've, I've taken a bet that there will be a big stream, a huge swathe of clients who will choose their agencies on a number of characteristics that have shifted. And one of those will be very high up the list will be, can you deliver a seriously sustainable event and measure it and measure it accurately and give us the data? That's right. Because I mean, again, without sounding disparaging about the subject, a lot of events went through a process of 
promoting themselves as being sustainable really because it was a good PR exercise. You know, they, they would they would tick certain boxes because it looked good for them to say, we've done this this year. We've recycled all of our waste. We've reduced the amount of transport and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, have we genuinely shifted to a scenario where people do want to do it because it's meaningful as opposed to just being a good PR box tick? I, I think that's a that's in process. I, I don't I don't think it's a complete shift. I think there are still organizations who see it as ticking a box and who bulk at the fact that it's slightly more expensive generally as a route to go down uh, and it's harder there's no doubt um, but it's it is getting easier it's a bit like um, the the transformation in vegan restaurants you know in my day a vegan restaurant was cranks and the food was awful um, nowadays you can get vegan food pretty much anywhere and it's great um, I think the same thing is going to happen to some extent is that you're going to have um, clients who really stick it at the top of their agenda. They mean it. Um, their shareholders expect them to do that. They get analysed and reported on how good they are at it. And, and it is going to be a buying factor that agencies should really pay attention to. Um, and for us, I think that pro we, we went through the ISO process really quickly. Um, we focused hard on it. I've been kind of warned off by a few of uh, a few other people who'd said, you know, we started it and, and gave up because it was too difficult. I disagree. The process was um, one about making the proper commitment, the proper resource commitment, the proper time commitment, and getting it done. And and Sue Sawyer, our CEO, um, ran the process, ran it like clockwork. We we came out of it yeah you know, really really well so much so that we're now doing two more so we're doing a data iso um, which we'll be completing in a couple of months and i've set the company a task of uh doing the uh health and safety one which is forty five thousand and one, because i think um that health and safety certification for us is going to be really important to certain clients in the future absolutely and i, and I think that the um that the subject of ISO certification within our own industry, I think, is one that, that's going to be addressed on a wider scale because really, again, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it's not something that I've seen a prevalence of in the industry historically. Is 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 agencies, is um, content delivery people, uh, AV companies, you know, log logistics, transportation, health and safety. You know, from from an ISO certification point of view, not like it is in other industries, in manufacturing and in construction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think there is a, a, a desire, certainly amongst clients who are seeking to engage an event agency to see that sort of level of credibility because there will be more people coming to want to deliver more events ultimately um and i think as well from a sustainability point of view to go back to that question i asked about whether or not we think it's going to continue to be a box ticking exercise for me you only have to look at the first couple of months of lockdown last year where people were reporting better air quality in london yeah. where yeah. People were reporting nicer skies at night and starrier nights and bluer skies because there were fewer planes in the air, fewer vehicles on the road. The impact of locking down on the environment was noticeable to people who would otherwise not even pay attention to it within yeah. two months. That, yeah. to me, says everything that you need to know. It does have an impact if everybody does play a genuine part. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more.
I, I think I think it's it was amazing to see that transformation, mm. um, and 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 an opportunity for people to really reap the benefit of the evidence that they could see easily around them. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other one you missed one um, hearing birdsong. Hearing bird. Yes, of course. Yeah. Lots of people said how much more birdsong they were hearing. Yeah. Um, and it's so nice. I, I live in you know South London on the fl two flight paths. And I've, I've never forgotten being able to sit in the garden with no planes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I know it. I, I, I'm a West London boy. That's where I grew up. And, you know, the Heathrow flight path was just part of your daily life. Yeah. You know, here in Concord, take off at just gone 11 o'clock most mornings, you know, was was what you grew up with. Um, so Concord's one of my guilty pleasures, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's um it, it's it's one that i remember well as a boy and like i said you know for for anybody who's lived under the the flight path of a major uh airport they will know exactly what it's like over the last 12 months to yeah to not have that that noise and you you sort of I, I i know a number of people who still live in that part of the world who said it took them a few days to suddenly realize oh oh crikey I've not heard a plane go past yeah. in a while. You know, it did take a, a little while for people to actually realise these changes were there. But I suppose bringing it back to, 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 to the conversation is that the last 12 months have brought moments of realisation for a lot of people, which ultimately, when people have talked about getting back to normal, and then we talked about the new normal, um, I think we can abandon all of that now. You know, stuff has shifted completely, not just in the events industry. You know, we, we, it's probably a deeper conversation I'm getting into now, but it really has genuinely shifted. You know, the, the events industry, I don't think will ever be as it was before. No, I, 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 you're right. It's, it has changed forever. The landscape's changed. Um, I think, you know, when I, I just look internally at what our staff have learned over the last 12 months and, and what they've become. I've seen talent in our agency um, that I had no idea people had those skills and abilities to do from being in front of camera presenting um, for our internal company meetings to taking on some of the really complicated back of house uh, vmix stroke tv gallery stroke recording studio uh, kind of stuff we've had to do from their own homes so I think it's it, it has changed forever. I'm really interested to try and work with uh, colleagues and friends in the industry to see what of those changes we think are going to stick and therefore where the new opportunities are that we can give to clients. Mm. Um, you know, there's lots of buzzwords around, you know, XR and AR and VR and MR and, um, you know, how, and hybrid and, you know, everyone's taking bets on whether they build a, their own recording studio or their own green screen studio and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's going to be a very interesting 12 months. And, and I think there are going to be a few people, us included, who will make a few big bets. Yeah, definitely. Um, what, one thing I'd like to ask you about, and it goes back to the, the subject of, it, it, it's really a sort of a, a move on from the subject of sustainability, because sustainability is not just about recycling materials or reusing stuff or, you know, 
travel and, and logistics but sustainability is also about sustaining the people that, that, that work for you um, and, and from a wellness point of view there are a number of bits on your own website on the Brandfield website that reference the whole working from home environment that people have had to adapt to and, and how you know you've had to work hard to actually keep your team you know engaged with the business and with the work not just engaged in the events that they're working on but with the team that they're working with um tell us about some of the stuff that you've done with your own team as an agency over the last 12 months to maintain that inner engagement so it, it's super important you know they're, they're a young team and um you know it's all very well for me i, I have a you know a nice house and rattle around in it and plenty of space but some of them are in one bedroom flats Mm -hmm. um, and staring at four walls for 24 hours a day. So we immediately upped our levels of engagement and communication with the team. Um, and what we did was we turned our company meetings into TV shows under the banner of Fuel Studios. And uh, that was hugely successful. So we challenged ourselves to learn new techniques, learn new broadcast techniques, get the studio to design three-dimensional green screen stuff. Mm -hmm get the team involved in presenting, get them involved in filming from their own homes and contributing. We had features like um, crew cribs. So we, <laughs> people took it in turns to film their, film their homes and show them around in the style of crew cribs and, and to edit that down. Uh, we did lockdown, lowdown, what were people getting up to, crafting. Um, I led a, a bread-making afternoon, which ran for 47 weeks last year. That's a lot of bread. That's a lot of bread, and and it was it was hilarious because at the beginning nobody could get flour and yeast, so I had a <laughs> I had a supply, I had a I, I had a restaurant that could get me 12, 16 kilo bags, so I mailed people flour and yeast so they could come and join us, and that grew to suppliers, to freelancers, and clients, and I still have many clients baking on a Friday afternoon even now, um, but it was about upping the levels of communication and then fuel studios itself became this training ground which helped with our plus ones uh, helped to train them to get them trained up on the technology on running shows on vmic on onboarding speakers um, and we now use it to solve client problems so you know for a bit of fun last week we recreated the oprah obama interview um, just to make sure that we could do it really really well and the results are fantastic um, we're doing the same with some networking ideas and we push these into our now every two week episodes on Fuel Studios and different team members are responsible for running different elements of it and we rotate who produces each show. So it's been amazing. It's been fantastic. I've asked this question of a lot of people in in since the podcast you know started back up again in, in january with, with with me at the helm um and that is the question of of being allowed to breathe as great as the pressure was put on event businesses and agencies this time last year um in terms of the questions that it posed i i, I genuinely get a sense that for the first time in a long time everybody was allowed to just take stock and breathe for a bit professionally and personally do, do you on both of those counts personally and professionally reflect on you know the time over the last 12 months and think actually yes i've had a chance to just take stock a little bit i i don't think i have i, I i'll be honest james i don't think i've 
ever worked as consistently hard as I've had to in the last 12 months. Um, I've taken barely any time off. And even the time off that I did try and take, I ended up having to work most of it. Um, and I think, you know, I found lockdown three personally quite difficult because it's more of the same, but there's more pressure um, on the company, company performance. You know, we're making some you know, big changes in the organization um, and trying to keep the wheels moving really quickly to get match fit. Um, and and there's just there just feels like there's no time off. That's interesting you say that because you know lockdown one, there was no expectation, really, was no. there? No. You was you were adapting quickly. You know, people allowed you, as you you said, you know, to, to maybe just think for a little bit and right, give, give us a couple of days. We need to sort this out. And yes, there was a panic, but there was no expectation. I guess now that we've come this far down the road and we've developed all of these online events and a digital offering and being able to create these wonderful virtual experiences for people there is perhaps now a level of expectation from clients. I think there is. And there is also a level of complexity that we've never seen before. Um, you know, pre-COVID, you get a brief in person. You've got years and years of experience personally and in your team and in your supply chain of how to deliver that event. Mm. Post-COVID, you have 12 months of experience as we stand right now. And the clients don't want one event they need uh, probably two or even three different versions of how to deliver it because of the uncertain future that we're all sitting in. Sure. So you don't have to answer one brief. You now have to answer probably three. And they're really complicated. Mm. You know, the, the, the number of moving parameters in an event now in terms of, you know, I've got a brief at the moment where, where um, a pitch we're putting in tonight it changed the job changes dramatically whether we do it green screen real set um all distributed from home or all in a um, book studio uh in the client's premises um how we deal with the us component of it all those things there are so many variables now um and it just makes that seamless delivery so much more complicated we're good at it but it, it's, I think it's triple the work. And we reckon that the difference between an in-person event and a virtual event is that the virtual event probably is about a seventh to a tenth of the budget. So we, at the beginning, worked out we had to do somewhere in the region of 70 to 100 times more projects just to stand still. Yeah. Of course, it's 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 crazy when you put it in that context because you know, as you said, the the budgets are lower, understandably, because end clients are not paying for for venues, for logistics, for equipment, for two days of build time with a, a thirty man crew to set it up, etc., yeah. etc. Et um, but from a delivery point of view, and I've got experience, you know, first hand experience of having done this with the the Event Tech Live event last year that we did five days of virtual having never done that before you know that there were there were three or four times more emails exchanged for every presenter speaker or panelist that was going to be joining yeah three or four times per person the amount of communication going backwards and forwards and then that was then amplified over a five-day virtual event whereas it would usually be a, a two-day live event um 
And so we found that the actual level of, of communications going backwards and forwards was an even bigger minefield. We had to make sure that the house was in order in order to manage all of those emails and, and, and Google invites coming in. You know, we had, to be, we had to be really methodical, even more so than normal. We had to find almost a set protocol, protocols. I find myself with lists, step one, step two, step three, step four for this particular task and follow that protocol all the way through to make sure that you don't mess up an element of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the, it, yeah, it's, it's similar probably from your end of things operationally is finding those, those processes to help manage things. Uh, it, it, totally. I mean, just, if you just take onboarding a speaker, um, you know, in pre COVID, actually the clients would do a lot more of that generally speaking mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, the pre-coms, finding speakers, pre-coms, managing them to, up to the event. Whereas now we're in it right at the beginning. Um, and we're, we're in that with um, trying to sort out their home internet connections, trying to sort out their backgrounds, their sound, their mic, their technology, um, and trying to do so in a way which isn't intrusive, um, but also which is super robust. Yeah. Um, and having onboarded as an agency probably over a 1,000 speakers over the last year, wow. we've pretty much seen it all in terms of what can go wrong and what does go wrong. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess uh, and knowing and learning quickly what what a good backup plan is. What is Plan B if this happens, and what is Plan B if that happens? Yeah. Um, the, the the value in in production run throughs. You know, um, again, we learned firsthand the hard way. You know, yeah, okay, the internet connections. Yeah, you can see me. We went live, and suddenly within the first half an hour, there were half a dozen issues that we realised actually we we haven't accounted for for that happening. Yeah. Um, let, and you having to fix them on the fly. And again, I suppose that brings us back to that, that idea of expectation, isn't it? We've come this far now that there is ultimately this expectation from clients that, um, oh, great, you've done this loads. A thousand, great. This will be no problem for you. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yes. And it's taught us a lesson in agility. Um, so we're spending a lot more time internally now looking at more agile processes mm -hmm. uh, because you know, we have to do more. There's, there's, as to your point, there are longer lists, there's more processes to get everything off the ground. Um, so we need, you know, really robust systems and processes internally in order to deliver reliably, mm. um, which is which is the game. Absolutely. We're rattling through time today, David, but there's one thing I want to ask you, and it's a point about, um, it, it ties back in with the sustainability conversation. Um, and also inevitably with the, the variation from country to country in how, internationally we are dealing with COVID-19 uh, and dealing with the virus. In the UK we're in a good position in terms of having the vaccine rollout. In other countries not so much um, and that's inevitably I think going to play a part when it, when we look at international travel in, in the coming year and as events start to come back and um, the example I'd like to throw is, is, is you know you take an event an internationally attended conference for 2,000 people is there a scenario where you could simultaneously deliver and it would be more efficient to deliver four events for 500 people at the same time, but in four locations that do actually then use the hybrid element to dovetail together? Is Are we going to see a scenario where live events still take place, but they're essentially split down into smaller individual ones? I hope so. I really hope so. I, I love the idea that um, these really big gatherings global gatherings are rethought 
so that they are more local gatherings networked together with good technology. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, time, um, time zones are an issue. You know, we always struggle um, getting Asia and the US or Asia and Europe in the right time zone for clients. Um, and sometimes Asia comes off as the sort of less important partner, which is yeah. just how it seems to go. But I, I would really love to see uh, local events uh, in person that have a, a really good technical backbone that pulls them all together for the right global moment. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, from a time zone point of view, that might only be an hour. But if that means that the senior leadership team of an organization can talk to a global audience who are locally seated and deliver their keynote for an hour, I think that'd be amazing. It'd be good from a sustainability, from a travel point of view. It would keep um, you know, some of the value of that enterprise within the region it's in. There is a disadvantage to it. And, and we know that the value of those in-person conversations across borders is what people really look for. They, they know their local audience really well, mm. and it's those moments they get to spend time with and meet their international audiences that has the value. So there's a bit of pressure that may bend that out of shape. Uh, but I'm sure there are some events where that just isn't the case. So if you're doing... Um, a community building event, for example, but you wanted the, the the senior leadership team to have their moment, you could run that simultaneously in several places in Europe and the US um, or several places in Europe and Asia and deliver that coming together moment that's really important for the brand to a broad community. Yeah, and, and I think just to, um, just to round things things off today, is that I think on a personal level there will be a willingness from a time zone point of view. You, you rightly point out it's very difficult sometimes to coordinate times, but I think if you look at this time is life and people not having to, to travel for two days in order to get to that event, I think their willingness maybe to get up at three o'clock in the morning in order to deliver their keynote will actually be there because they've not had to fly halfway around the world in order to do that in person. So yeah. I think that whilst the time zone thing in that particular instance is without doubt an issue for people who are organizing international events. I think collectively there's a, there's a willingness for people to adapt and to shift. And if it means getting up early or staying up late, but not having to travel, I think that's a, it could potentially be a huge, you know, string to our bow to have going forward. I hope so. I really hope so, James. Yeah. Um, our guest today has been David Ball. David is the founder and CEO of Brand Fuel. If you want to find out a bit more about that, what, uh, what those guys are up to, brandfuel.co.uk. If you're watching this uh, on Event Industry News, the uh, address is now on your screen. David, thank you very much for talking to us today. I know we've sort of gone on a, a number of different tangents, but it's been great to sort of pick your brains and, and find out what you've been up to today. And um, we'd love to have you uh, back on as a guest at the podcast in future as well to hear, uh, hear about what you've been up to and how the rest of 2021 pans out for, for the guys at Brandfield. Thank you very much indeed, James. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And if anyone wants to check me out on any of the social channels, uh, they're all um, Big Dave Ball.
Big Dave Ball. There we go. Big Search Dave for it. <laughs> Fantastic. If uh, if anybody wants to get in touch, of course, with uh, with us at Event News Blog is our Twitter. Uh, eventindustrynews.com is the website. If you're watching this on the website already, head over to your smartphone or your your tablet device. Go to your podcast platform, and you can listen to audio versions of all of the 230 or so episodes of the Event Industry News podcast that we've done so far. Of course, if you are listening to the podcast today, we hope you're enjoying uh, your walk and some spring sunshine. Head over to eventindustrynews.com when you're back at home and check out some of the latest news features and supplements that have been published on the Event Industry News website. That brings us nicely to the end of today's podcast. Uh, our thanks again to Dave Ball from Brand Fuel for his uh, fantastic conversation today. And uh, for those watching on video, the superb cycling poster that's on the wall behind him. Um, an excellent addition to any home office if you can get your hands on one. Dave, thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you very much indeed, James. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you on the next edition of the podcast. Thanks for joining, everybody. Goodbye. Cheers. Mm-hmm.